You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky films and why we frickin' love them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. In this episode, we are looking at Gilda, a 1946 film noir, directed by Charles Vidor and starring Rita Hayworth as Gilda, Glenn Ford as Johnny Farrell and George McCready as Balin Munson. It was written by Marion Parsonet and E.A. Ellington, and the cinematography was by Rudolf Maté. Um, there's some also some very recognisable character actors from uh, that era, including Joseph Kalea, Stephen Jerry, and Joe Sawyer. Lindsay, what's Gilda about? Well, when down on his luck, gambling cheat Johnny Farrell gets mugged on the docks in Buenos Aires, he's rescued by debonair upper-class Balin and his cane with a hidden knife. Like his cane, Balin is a man of secrets. First one being, what's he doing down at the docks in the dead of night? <laughs> Balin gives Johnny a job and a place to live in return for Johnny managing his casino. It's all going well till Balin goes off on business and brings back a souvenir in the form of a sexy wife, Gilda. Gilda and Johnny take an instant dislike to each other, but actually that's not the first time they've met. And Balin can be awfully possessive. What follows is an S&M three-way relationship with sexual jealousy across all three parts of the triangle. And as a reminder, this film was made in Hollywood in 1946. <laughs> Gary, what's wrong with this picture? Um, well, you pretty much summed it up, but um, I'll, um, I'll start with uh, the scene, I think a scene that elucidates it perfectly, which has happened three minutes into the film. Uh, as you say, uh, Balin is, you know, hanging around the docks uh, and just in time to rescue uh, Johnny. And um, the exchange between them is uh, quite beautiful. Um, uh, it's, uh, they, they start off with some banter about the cane uh, and the importance of it, um, which is, of course, um, and has a close-up shot of uh, the blade in the cane disappearing beneath the sheath. <laughs> um, and um, Glenfall comes right out and, and asks, says to Balin, um, you must lead a gay life. Uh, to which the response is, I lead the life I want to lead. Uh, to which uh, Johnny's response is, you're a lucky man. <laughs> um, it's so blatantly, um, what's weird about it is that in 1946, in Hollywood, in a film that was actually very, very deliberately meant as a reintroduction um, to the public, to Rita Hayworth, after a very scandalous public breakup with Orson Welles um, that it is so plainly um, a strange pansexual three-way uh, between uh, two men and a woman mm. and um, that the dialogue is the brilliant brilliant dialogue is so blatant about it um, that I can't it's it's hard to see that even the most naive viewer could have missed it although I perhaps if you are if you get yourself wrapped up in the plot, then maybe you could. Yeah. Um, but there is no reason for Balin 
to take Johnny Farrell uh, off the street and, you know, put him in charge of his casino pretty much after what seems like, I think it mentions a year at one point, but it seems like a week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, Johnny, Johnny gets groomed and perfumed all on Balin's money. He goes to Balin's house. I mean, Johnny, it seems, lives above the casino, but he goes to Balin's house and lets himself in with his own key. Yep. <laughs> so, it, it, as you say, it kind of it kind of couldn't be uh, plainer that this is meant to be a kind of gay relationship. Um, Johnny is kind of constantly compared to this cane that mm, Balin has. Yes. And uh, Balin calls it his faithful and obedient friend. Yes. So again, there is that kind of uh, you do as I as I tell you. Um, and 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 into this kind of harmonious relationship between these two comes Gilda, uh, luminous, luminous, luminous Rita yeah, Hayworth, yeah. who's introduced um, to the screen, really, in a, in a really beautiful way. So Balin has said, oh, come and meet my wife. And at this point, Johnny doesn't know who it is. They go into the bedroom and he says, Gilda, are you decent? <laughs> and and uh, Rita Hayworth has her head down. She flows back this mane of hair and she says me in this kind of very flirty, seductive way. So is she decent? She is She is kind of saying, no, I'm not decent, yeah. but you married it. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> you've married it now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there is this notion of movement as well. So right mm. from the start, Rita Hayworth is kind of moving with this yeah. kind of head, head back. Yeah, and she's also a dancer. And so despite Balin's kind of possessiveness of her, and he can see that there is something between her mm. and Johnny. Mm. And he's not averse to it, actually, because he's quite perverse himself. Mm. Um, but this goes all through the three of them. So when Johnny understands who Gilda is and doesn't say, I've met her before, Gilda doesn't say, I've met him before. But but Johnny has this voiceover. And in this voiceover, he says, I wanted to watch them in secret. So mm. everybody is kind of slightly perverse about what's happening between, between, the, between the other two. And... In some ways, this is very kind of key and typical of noir. So it mm. does have a lot of film noir attributes. There is a there is a voiceover, there is a yep. narration. There is a woman who's kind of moving this man off the path of, of what he's mm -hmm. in. And that femme fatale yep. often is a, is a trope in, in noir. Yep. Although whether you'd call Gilda femme fatale or not, I don't really more know. More complex, I think. It is more complex than that. Um, and, and this notion of deviance is also quite a... A key noir mm. thing. Now I know mm. we've discussed here before that film noir wasn't a thing. It was named actually in 1946 by the yep. French. So when these films are being made, nobody is kind of saying self-consciously making self-consciously. And yet they 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 have this. There are things in common which is kind of coincidence or the darkness of the world at the time or mm. or something like that. So there are often kind of queer characters in in noir if you think about Laura mm. uh the um Clifton Webb character yeah, Walter Lidecker yes, clearly coded as as gay you know he's being interrogated by Dana Andrews and Waldo's lying in the bath yeah yep <laughs> or if you think about Maltese Falcon uh, many Peter Laurie's, character, Peter and, Laurie's yeah. character is 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 kind of you know when he's he's introduced by the receptionist to Humphrey Bogart and she says oh you've got somebody here to see you I think she says smells of jasmine and fragrance and perfume. Very, yeah, very, yeah, very kind much of gay, gay signifier. So what, what, what Gilda does is it takes those side characters and it puts them kind of front. Yeah, front and centre. Front and centre. Um, and there's this kind of three-way loyalty. So there are, there are 
there are various toasts. So when it's just Balin and Johnny, Balin says to the three of us, because he's including his cane mm, in this, yeah, <laughs> in this yeah. threesome. Yep. And then later on when Gilda joins them, it's to the three of us and it's Balin, Johnny and Gilda. And the, I mean, there's a plot doesn't really matter. A tungsten monopoly. I mean, yeah, it really, that, that doesn't matter. What we're watching is the relationships between between these three. Yes, absolutely. Every time those three are on screen together, the film crackles. Uh, the three of them, uh, all three performers, Hayworth, Ford and MacReady, are brilliant. Um, I don't believe for one second that an actor who like Glenn Ford, who was a very, very, I'd say he was a second rank leading man for a long time in Hollywood and very much the reliable actor, uh, you know, who would, would play tough guys in Westerns and, uh, you know, crime films, you know, and et cetera, uh, but mainly good guys um, with solid values. Um, I don't believe for one minute he had, he had any doubt that he was playing this this role as a knowingly self-loathing gay man, um, and and the self-loathing bit is key. Yeah. Um. Uh, my favourite critic, uh, David Thompson, puts it very well in his book. Have you seen? Um. He says that um, there is self-loathing in Ford's performance, and that is very unusual in that actor. And there's probably only two really, really great performances by other great performances by Glenn Ford not that I've seen every one of his films but that really stood out and both of them he played a bad guy and that's in um, the western 310 to Yuma mm. and uh, a film noir called Big Heat where he is a cop um, but he's a very confused and, and uh, compromised cop mm. um, who is prone to violence and so there was something in Glenn Ford that those three parts brought out which was not this square jawed hero yeah um and it's enormous testament to him that rita hayworth i mean the camera adores that woman yeah and yet they have so many scenes together and the chemistry has to work between them for the film to work and he he's not the world you know he's not got the charisma of a bogart and a mitchum and he's not got the beauty of a i don't know a montgomery clift mm -hmm. or whatever um but he 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 is not blown off screen by her. You know, he, he manages to stand up to her and, and you know, and, and not be just relegated. Um, he has to be a relatively strong character, even though he is plainly a weak man in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And that's quite a complex thing to play. Yeah, and it's, it's got to be... This is a triangle where there have got to be three powerful points. There isn't a weak husband where the two of them are kind of... Uh, dallying behind his back because actually Balin in this um, I don't know he cruelty exudes from him yes you know he's he's a dodgy businessman that that kind of that kind of comes out and he's and he's possessive you don't see much in the way of flirting or kind of sex or kissing or anything between those two so he accepts that this marriage is not a kind of traditional marriage and you yeah. get the feeling that's not really what he's what he's after, and he kind of charges Johnny with making sure that Gilda's okay because basically he says what I've bought and paid for, mm. I want to I want to mm. make sure it's protected. Yeah. Um. And so whether that's kind of protected from 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 other men, 
And and that whole notion of Gilda, are you decent? And she says me. She's she, she's very much presented as a promiscuous woman, and she she kind of says yeah. that about herself. Of course, the Hollywood ending is, of course, she didn't do any of those things, really. Yeah. But, but yeah. all the way through. But nobody's buying that. Nobody's ever loved that film and no. bought that ending. No, no, no. And that's the thing. Sometimes the script can tell you something and you're like, well, I'm not believing it because I can see it with my own eyes. Yeah. I can see what's happening. But for the censors, it's yeah, all in had the to script. Be there. It's all had in the to script. be there. But but so she she is this woman who kind of invites love's male attention and she's constantly kind of dancing with other men. And it's that movement again. So Balin kind of wants to, he wants to curtail her movements. He wants to know where she is. And this is why Johnny's kind of bird-dogging her a little. Yeah. Later on, Johnny will kind of, in his turn, attempt to constrain her. And yet, and yet she she breaks free. So she dances with other men. This movement, this kind of I'm I will not be held by your gaze. Even yeah, she's got this this kind of movement. So whether it's dancing with other men, and then later on dancing with the whole dancing for the whole room of men. Yes, when she's she runs away and she's a she's a performer, famously singing uh, "Put the Blame I'm on, on Maine, Maine. which is an incredible routine as well. And that that sort of completely reminds me. I, it, one of my favourite scenes again, the, the use of metaphor in. It, I mean, you know, it's very much a, a factor, a, a big element of dialogue of the time. Because once again, they could not talk outwardly about sex. Mm. You know, nobody was allowed to do that. Uh, just as the, couldn't really out, talk outwardly about politics or race or mm. anything. Everything had to be put in some kind of metaphorical context context there's been a three-way confrontation with them um uh, when uh, basically uh, johnny has brought her back from uh, a place where she was going to maybe sleep with another guy she's brought him home and balin is is waiting for them and he makes up a lie on the spot uh, which she goes along with that they went for, she went for a swim mm. and johnny went to go get her and after this uh wonderful bitch fest um which which reaches one high point where um when jo- johnny says um what is it um uh about women um oh my god i'm trying to find it in my notes because i want to get it word perfect because it's brilliant statistics show that there are more women in the world than anything <laughs> except insects but her response is so wonderful it, it's literally like well, on that generous note, I think I'll go to bed kind of thing. <laughs> she is not phased about it at mm. all. And then comes uh, an incredible um, sort of exchange between Balin and Johnny. And Balin is shot in this dramatic sh- uh, shot as where he's nothing but a silhouette. Yeah, he's just um, a shadow. And um, it's basically something that goes like, um, so Johnny... Um, uh, did you, uh, you know, are you a good swimmer? And Johnny's like, yep, I'm, I'm pretty okay. You know, would you teach me how to swim? Mm. And he's like, um, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Um, did you teach Gilda how to swim? And Johnny just goes, I taught her everything she knows and swaggers out of the thing. And it's just, whoa. It's a really powerful scene because actually Johnny for the first time is is kind of saying, I'm not just your employee. Yeah. 
I was there before you. And it, it, not just I've had sex with Gilda, but you can only push me so far. Yeah. And and Johnny, in his in his fashion, normally in a film like that, there would be looks between Johnny and Gilda and Fair would immediately start in a, in a film noir. None of that happens. None of that happens. But it's also key because Balin, up until this point, has been playing the dominant alpha. Mm. And suddenly yeah. we see his absolute sexual insecurity. Yeah. And, you know, it. it's, you know, he's basically saying... You know, you're a stud. Um, show show me how to to satisfy her. You know, I I I yeah. recognise you're a stud, and I'm not. And it it's kind of like wow, wow. Um, and he is distraught. You know, um, another really interesting thing that I, I only picked out, and this must be the third time I've seen it, but I only picked out is that whereas characters in noir generally they are either motivated by love, might be an unhealthy love, but it's love or they are motivated by sex, or they are motivated by money. Uh, often in the context of survival, but money. All of those things come up in Gilda, but in the end, the one thing all three characters share as a motivation and say it out loud is hate. Yeah. It's the film's key word. Yeah. And their relationship with each other is actually fueled by hate. Not desire, not lust, not love. Yeah. And not even greed, hate. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like wow, bloody hell, um, uh, you know it's. I think it's a very unusual film because you know you and I have watched a, a lot of noir films, mm. and you can easily watch it and think, oh yeah, this is a, a noir film, and it's it's all about Rita Hayworth, and a lot of it is about mm. Rita Hayworth and just how amazing she looks, and as you see her her, her kind of come back, and uh, I mean she was. She was well known before this. This made her an absolute star. Yeah. An absolute star. Yeah. And pretty much the only one that Columbia had, the studio that she yeah. was with. Yeah. So she was she was their golden goose. Absolutely yeah. their the, the golden goose. And on the basis of this, you can you can kind of see see yeah. why. But yeah, you're right. At one point she says to Johnny, Do you have any idea how much I hate how much I hate you? And that's a, that's an echo that somebody yeah. else has said, I think, as well. Yeah. Do you have any idea how much I hate you? I'm willing to destroy myself to take you down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at one point, Balin actually says, um, if I can find it in my notes, um, hate is the only thing that has ever warmed me. Oh, cold. Absolutely cold. Man, cold. right? And, and I, I don't know if you remember how Johnny first learns, I mean, he's, how, how he first learns that they knew each other before. I mean, at their first meeting, he sees that something's yeah, up. Yeah. He sees that something's up. They're not hiding up. it well. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, when he first meets Johnny and he says, oh, you know, I wouldn't normally put a cheat in charge of my casino. And Johnny's like, you know, as far as you're concerned, I'm I'm born today. I have no past, only future. Mm. And Gilda has said the same thing to, to Balin as well. So he knows that Johnny and Gilda have kind of probably said this to each other yeah. uh, uh, in the past. And that's also unusual for Anwar because even if you think about Casablanca, We'll always have Paris. There's an immediate flashback to, to Paris. Yeah. Or out of the past, there's a flashback to when they met before. There's no flashback no. here. We don't see no. Gilda and Johnny. No. At all. Ever. Before uh, they are in kind of Balin's world. And also, again, and this is the first time I noticed it watching it, is um, when they finally start to actually talk to each other about the fact that they were in a relationship together at some point, um, it's Gilda that says... I've only ever been faithful to one man and look how that turned out. Yeah. And and it's quite plainly him. Yeah. Um 
you all the way through the way he's behaving towards her this bitter spite the assumption is well she must have cheated on him she keeps bagging on about how promiscuous she is he keeps bagging on mm. about how promiscuous he, you know so she must have cheated on him well guess what that was not the reason they split up and it's kind of like okay you know, I, I, I was just sitting there thinking, okay, is it saying that he cheated on her with a woman? Is it saying he cheated on her with a man? Is it saying, actually, it wasn't that at all. Maybe he's just not straight enough for her. Yeah. And he crawled away in, in humiliation yeah. and embarrassment um, or fell in love with a guy or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, but it's definitely not what you were led to believe for the first, I don't know, hour and a bit of the film that she's some strumpet who just broke yeah. his heart that's not what happened and, and I, I think that's absolutely true and, and you look at her and, and, and you just assume she is a person that people fall in love with and she's not necessarily a person that falls in love yeah which is another femme fatale trope yeah noir. and and yet you, that's not the case as, no. as you say that's not the case she fell deeply in love with him for whatever reason it, it, it didn't work out he was the one who couldn't kind of commit or whatever and so whatever ending we said the plot doesn't matter in this one I, I don't think it's a, it's a question necessarily of spoilers yeah but but the notion that that Johnny and Gilda might go off at the end and have a perfect life well they tried that already that's not going to work a second yeah. time yeah um can we, can, can we just sort of get rid of because then we can go back to all the things we love yeah um get rid of the film's flaw um it, I think um you've touched on it already the plot involving corrupt police, cartels, a tungsten cartel, German gangsters at one point, it's rubbish. Yeah. And every single time Rita Hayworth and or Balin disappear off screen and we're, or Johnny disappears off screen and we're getting some gangster or some cartel or some corrupt cop or some detective talking to Balin or Johnny... It's like, could you get back on with the film, please? Because <laughs> none of us care about this. I just want to watch those three interacting and see where this goes. Yeah, no, ab absolutely, absolutely. It is a, it is a, it is a three-way film, isn't it? Yeah. We, we want to see the three-way. Yeah, because there's there's something at one point. Balin says something about, well, you know, the importance of a of a an element like tungsten, a, a key, crucial, strategic element. You're like, yes, <laughs> uh, tell me more. Yeah, but no, <laughs> we don't no. get told anyone. So I, I no, he says. A man could rule the world. Yeah. Like, how? Yeah. How, how, how could tell tungsten what, help him rule the world? Tell me what tungsten's used for, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because Cliff Forward goes, don't know much about tungsten. He's like, yeah, I'm not bothered to tell you. Yeah. Uh, let's just crack on. <laughs> because it's, like, it's so not funny. important. It's all about no. Rita Hayworth's hair and her hips yes. and her lips and her eyes, because actually she's not just a looker in this film. She really gives it. And it, oh, and it she, comes... Her performance it, is brilliant. It, 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 yeah, it, it comes out of her eyes. And it's Johnny's queerness and weirdness and it's Balin's... I mean, Balin is queer and weird, but he's also... He's got this kind of power thing. He's yeah. got this kind of... Yeah, he's, he's quite scary. He is scary. I'll, I'll see how it, this plays out between these two insects yeah, that I've got yeah, yeah, yeah. that I'm, I'm shining the uh, magnifying glass on. I'll just see what, what happens as Absolutely. a result. Absolutely. And he really, you know, that that's why that, that incredible conversation about swimming as a metaphor mm. is so powerful because for the first time in the entire film, he looks utterly powerless. Yeah. And, and the, the directorial decision to plunge him into total darkness 
while while he humiliates himself, yeah, is just so powerful. Yeah, it's so beautifully done. We've got to talk, and you know, because you led on to it, put the blame on Mame. Yeah, okay, because it's the most famous scene in the film, and it's one of those things where you know, I, I'd kind of done a bit of reading before I watched it. And over and over again, put the blame on Mame. Oh, it's such a legend. Mm. Oh, what a performance. Oh, I, that I was almost kind of like, ah, it's not the best thing about this. Everybody's mm. exaggerating. And then sat there in the two versions yeah, of put the blame on Mame and was like, no, this is an absolute work of genius. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. The big, the big production version mm. first, which is actually the second time it's performed. Yeah. What, yeah. what's, what's your take? Because you love your musicals and your noirs. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build up to that, if you don't mind, and start oh, start oh. off with the, the first time she sings it. So she's been out on a, on a, been out on the rave somewhere and, and she's, she's back late. It's five in the morning. So I mentioned that uh, Johnny lives above the casino and he hears, he hears her voice. And in the narration, he's like, I thought I was going crazy. I heard her voice, but actually it is her voice. And she's sitting, strumming a guitar, and uh, the the person that she's with is this this kind of uncle, Uncle Leo, is Uncle Pio, who's Uncle the Pio, that's he's it. the toilet attendant yeah. who kind of sees right through Johnny and sees the kind of person he is, and he's the he's the kind of he's the jester speaking yes. truth to power the, yeah, all the way through. Exactly, the jester speaking truth to power, put, put perfectly. And so he's her audience, and she's strumming a, a guitar, not incredibly convincingly, I have to say, but she's strumming a guitar, and she's singing. It's not her singing. It's a woman called Anita Ellis. We don't hear right. her singing uh, okay. at all. Um, she's singing "Put the Put the Blame on Mame," and the song is about uh, this happened and this happened, and you you thought it was a natural occurrence, or you, you thought this fire started because of this, and it was like Mame. It was this woman. So this woman is to blame for everything, everything, for absolutely everything. But the way she's singing it the first time is it's kind of like you know this woman. Her her manner, the words kind of are the same, but her manner is implying that this blame is kind of being wrongly applied yeah. to her, to Gilda. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm feeling sorry for myself. And she sings it very a cappella. The second time she sings it, this is when she's still married to Balin, but, you know, things are starting to break down. The second time she sings it, she's run away um, because of this life is just kind of constraining her. And now she's a singing star in... Montevideo, which I think is Ecuador. I don't know. Uruguay, I think. Is it Uruguay? Okay. I think so. So she's in Mont- Montevideo because the, the, the main business is taking place in Buenos Aires. She's in Montevideo and she sings this song and she's wearing a black kind of satin strapless gown, black evening gloves, hair. It's a shame this film is in mm. black and white because her <laughs> yeah. hair is famously kind of vibrantly flame red. Flame red. Yeah, yeah. But it's in black and white. Um, and she's wearing this, this black dress and she's singing this song in a very sexy way. And it's not a torch song. We don't see her kind of crooning into the microphone. She's twisting and she's dancing mm. and she's gyrating. She pulls off one glove. Yeah. But it's a striptease, basically. It's a striptease. She doesn't take any of her clothes off, but it is basically a striptease. And it's very, it's meant to be sexual and it's meant to be this kind of, this is this is who she is. She's been saying to us all along, I'm this kind of woman. There's been hints that she's um, uh, promiscuous. There's been hints that she used to be a dancer. And now suddenly this is Gilda unveiled 
we're seeing Gilda for kind of what she is. And this song is like, you're right to blame women. We are responsible for everything. Yeah, but but also, yeah. So, yeah, definitely. It, it, what a brilliant way to basically tell the audience, yep, you guessed right, I was a stripper. Yeah. Um, and maybe more of a sex worker. That's not clear. Um, and that she is, like you say, celebrating it. But I also... I I love there's a quite a, a, a feminist reading of it these days. I, I love which I love, which is even as she's owning it, she's laughing at men at the very notion that women always get the blame. Mm. That the song is an exaggeration, a mockery of the idea that when men it goes wrong for men, they always point the finger at the woman. And and particularly sung at Johnny. Uh, because, you know, you blew it yeah. because you fancy men and you're still blaming me for it. Okay. You are still blaming me for it. I didn't put two and two together, but you're right. You're right. And I, and I think that is, and, and I think it's it's vital that we're not just watching as an audience. It's vital that Johnny's watching it and his face is is a picture. Yeah. Because he knows what she's singing. He knows what she's singing and it's another humiliation for him. Yeah public humiliation about his sexuality. I think without doing that in any direct way in the script at all, the stripping off of that one glove is genius. Mm. There's no way a censor's coming after that. But it tells the the viewer everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it kinda led to that famous thing that she said ruefully after, you know, because in, in her private life she had several husbands, including Orson Welles, including a prince, Ali Khan, you know, she retired for a while and then she came back. Um and she said, very famously, Men go to bed with Gilda and they wake up with me. Brackets. It's a disappointment because I am not that woman. Yeah. Uh, isn't that extraordinary? I mean Rita Hayworth was was a pretty big star before Gilda. Um Gilda was not like you know, a big os, you know, an Oscar bait, a picture. However, the impact of it was so huge that even she couldn't get out from under Gilda. Mm, mm. So Charles Vidor uh, was never an A-list director. Uh, no relation to King Vidor. Um, he um, born in Hungary. Uh, one of the many emigres that came to Hollywood in order to make films, uh, escaping uh, what was happening in Europe. Um, He had a career that lasted 31 years. Uh, He made 34 films um, and uh, he died in 1959. Um, He never made another film that has been in the pantheon. Mm. Gilda is the only pantheon film which is still talked about, still picked over, still analysed. You know, he made films like The Joker is Wild with Sinatra and all of these things, the films he made, the light films, a film called Cover Girl... They were all commercial hits, which is why he kept working. Um, but they weren't, you know, seen as great films. Mm. Yet his choices, there's an opening. I, one of one of my favourite bits of this film is the very first shot. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, so there's basically it starts, there's a beautiful opening shot of a, a desperate and unkempt looking Glenn Ford uh, looking straight at us surrounded by men. The camera pans up and back a little and we see we are lying on the floor, essentially, watching Ford shoot dice. He wins and the voiceover says, to me, a dollar is a dollar in any language. (laughs) That is film noir in 30 bloody seconds. 
Absolutely. Um, but did you notice in that scene as well, when it first sees it and we see the dice in the foreground, they're massive. Yeah. They're like the size of dice yeah. you used to hang on your wind, on your um, mirror. Uh, Poor you, German expressionism, isn't it? Poor they're just, that, they're just like, massive. And then the film, uh, the camera moves in to his face, moves back, and what he's grabbing are like normal sized yeah. dice. But it's these kind of giant, gigantic it's wonderful. dice in front. It's wonderful. And, and the way the camera subtly, you know, we're just thinking, well, why, why is he looking at us? Why is this guy looking at us? You know, and, and then we realise he's not looking mm. at us. He's looking at these giant dice. And uh, it, it, it's and, and just that first beautiful first line, or a dollar is a dollar in yeah. any language. And it's, I, it, you know, I don't really know how Charles Vider never made another really, really, really notable yeah. movie because yeah. his moves here in this are, are perfect. They are, they are great. And, you know, but uh, yeah, but film noir, I don't know, maybe it brings out the best in some people. I'm sure there mm. are there are terrible films, but there's just something about the th- that vernacular when you work in it that, that, that kind of lends something. I've seen Covergirl. It's Rita Hayworth again with uh, Jean, Jean Kelly. And it's, How is it? Yeah, it's all right. Phil Silvers is in it. So, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, it's a. It's a Sounds quite made for you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> again, it's a it's a threesome, but not in any in any kind of sexual way like this one is. Um, yeah. I mean, talking about Rita Hayworth, famously born Margarita Cancino with uh, Mexican heritage, so she was very much a studio creation. You know, they dyed her hair. They actually kind of electrolysis. Is that is that the word? Her hairline. She had a kind of wow. widow's peak, very pronounced widow's peak. Uh, down her forehead so uh, they kind of got rid of all that moved her hairline back dyed it red changed her name and also in Gilda as I mentioned she she doesn't sing so she mm, is this mm. uh, her, her, she, she can sing uh, but her voice was deemed not strong enough even for the a cappella bit that's not her singing despite right. despite rumours to the contrary so she is this invented thing this yeah. invented goddess manufactured this manufactured thing and that's that's the thing about they go to bed with with, with Gilda uh, and wake up with me. Yeah, absolutely. A, a couple of bits of dialogue I, I I really like. So she, you know, she is this invented invented character, if you like. But she's always questioning things as a character, Gilda, and she, she's always like, "Do you think that stands for something? Do you think that means anything?" So mm, she's yeah. she's like this little she's like this little dig to the audience. Is this yeah, something you should be paying yeah, attention to? Yeah. Am I telling you something here about my character that maybe you didn't see before? And I just think I think that's really clever. Yeah. What, what, what other dialogue do you like? Um, there are really some 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 classics here. Um, there there's a whole scene where it's quite early on. Uh, you know, in this whole triangle, uh, bizarre love triangle, and um, uh, there is a scene in the uh, the casino, and a uh, handsome man, uh, one of many, comes and asks her to dance. And uh, as she goes off to the dance, uh, the dance floor, he mentions, "Oh, you know, your young man." She thinks that Johnny Glenford is her young man. Um, is doesn't look too pleased about her going to dance with him, and she says, "The young man would love to, but he can't afford it." <laughs> and uh, when uh, Balin essentially orders in his very much dominant alpha male S and M way, uh, orders Johnny to go and get her off the dance floor and get her away from the guy. Uh, Glenford pretty much says, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, uh, strides up to them both and says and says to her, pardon me, your husband is showing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just genius, right? It's so, it's so good. And, but it's, he, he maintains that loyalty 
to Balin. Yes. Kind of throughout. There's a wonderful moment where, um, again, the truth-telling jester, Uncle, mm. Uncle Pio, basically the, the crime plot, um, and this is when it gets used sometimes as a device. In this little moment, it is used entirely as a device to tell the audience something again about Johnny Farrell. And he presents him with a choice. Look over there and you'll see that Gilder is being hit on by mm. a man that looks threatening. Um, upstairs, Balin has just been visited by some gangsters. Um, and he just sort of looks at it almost and sort of, and Glenford goes running up the stairs. To Balin. And, and Uncle Pio says, there's your choice. Mm. Yeah. And it's just, there you go. Who's his biggest loyalty to, despite, you know, she's the love of his life yeah. or some, some other thing? Nope, yeah. it's him. Yeah, and and th- there's a there's a, a a period later in the film where Johnny has much more control over over uh, Gilda, and instead of basically Balin Balin is off the scene. Uh, instead of kind of capitalising on that for his own ends, he he just says to to Gilda, "You weren't faithful to him before, but you're going to be faithful to him now." Yeah, and it's it, it, he he still kind of retains this this loyalty. I just one other thing I, I really like as well in the in the dialogue, which under undercuts that queerness. Mm. Several times, Gilda says to Johnny, "You're looking very pretty." Yeah. Gilda says to Johnny, Johnny "You're looking very." Rita Hayworth says to Glenn Ford in 1946, "You're looking very pretty." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so. It's so queer. Um, another beautiful dialogue moment for me. And this is, you know, Gilda's mocking um, view of her own presumed um, promiscuity. Um, she says, if I'd been a ranch, I'd have been named the bar nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And all the way through, she's 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 telling us this. And yeah. then it's undercut at the end, but she's not. And and that, you know, a promiscuous woman is is as queer in terms of not being that kind of heteronormative yeah. vanilla lifestyle. It's as queer in 1946 as actually kind of being queer. It's, it's, Absolutely. it's another, it's another and, deviance. And another big big old one for, for Johnny. Um, uh, in a conversation with Balin, uh, he, says, um, he says to Balin, um, yeah, surround yourself with ugly women and beautiful men. That's a good business plan. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's just... It's, it's, it, no other film... No other film of the period spoke like that. No, it just didn't. It's... No, it's a, it's an it's an S and M it's an S and M dream. But um, I think we're coming to the end of this one. Don't I you? think so. So um, I guess there's a few contenders for what uh, we could measure. Retractable canes. <laughs> I try, what, it's a flick, retractable is it, cane. Is it, is it a flick knife where the the blade suddenly appears? Yeah. Is that a, so it's a yeah. flick knife cane, basically. A flick it's, knife cane. Yeah. That's a good name for a band. Flick knife cane. <laughs> okay, all right. So, how cool. many flick knife canes are you giving it for weirdness and for quality? Uh, for quality, I'm going to go for eight. For weirdness in the context of 1946, it's 10. It's 10. Yeah. I think it's still weird now. Yeah. In 2023. So, what it must have given <laughs> <laughs> for 1946, I do not know. Yeah. I and could, and I the fact I... that the storyline makes no sense whatsoever outside of those three. It just adds to the weirdness. Yeah. I think for me, in terms of weirdness, I, I, I think it is, a, you know, a 10 in in terms of uh, flick knife canes. For quality, I, I absolutely love it. And it's really, it, it, is, it is a great watch. And it's even 
better, I think, to to dive deeper into it. As you say, the plot makes no sense, but it really, the plot is not the thing. The po- the, the point is the triangle and the three points of that triangle. Yeah. Um, I'm giving it a nine for uh, quality. And, you know, we've mentioned Glenn Ford, we've mentioned Rita Hayworth, but George McCready as absolutely. well is great in this, isn't really he? He really is, yeah. Not a huge name in, in Hollywood history, but absolutely crucial to this, this classic film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that's it for us, don't you think? Yeah, well, well worth seeing. Uh, check it out and put the blame on me. <laughs> Till next time. Till next time. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert.